This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm. Thanks for listening to the Polar Geopolitics podcast. Feel free to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. Here in episode 13, we'll take a look at how the media cover the Arctic and create narratives to explain and sometimes sensationalize what's happening in the far north. Later in the show, we'll hear from media studies professor Mia Christensen, who's done extensive research on the role of the media in Arctic geopolitics. We'll also speak with Nina Worms, a science and technology expert, who explains the significance of and science behind a key turning point in media coverage of the Arctic, the 2007 Arctic sea ice minimum. But we'll start with an Arctic media entrepreneur, Alice Rogoff, who shares a personal turning point that motivated her to establish the website Arctic Today. I was made aware of the significance of the Arctic sea ice melt by a brilliant fellow named Scott Borgerson, who in 2007 wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in which 25,000 words later, I took away the one sentence that never left me, which is, in his lifetime, the volume of cargo that passes through the port of Singapore today would be passing through the port of Dutch Harbor, Alaska, and by inference, on up through the Bering Strait and across the North Pole, connecting Asia and Europe in a route that is half the length of the other routes that exist today. And that, to me, was a thought that was so stunningly big in its implications that I never got over it, and I started educating myself. And he was one of the founders of this assembly with me. I'd like to think that we've done well for 11 years, but look at the number of people we haven't yet gotten to pay attention. There's never-ending need for more communication. So that year, 2007, was actually a, it was a session based on the year 2007 here at the assembly. So that year is the shock year, the sea ice minimum, the Russian exactly. flag planting, that, that article perhaps as well was part That's of That's what caused him to write the article. And what do you think about the narrative that took root since then, the idea of the scramble for the Arctic narrative? Do you find that that was maybe alarmist or misleading? No, and in fact, at the time, he he really did anticipate a scramble for Arctic resources in a conflicted environment. Since then, he's written a follow-up that said, no, the conflict's probably over, now we're going to be partners and it'll be a consensual governance process. And I think then you could argue to today that he was closer to the truth the first time around. But human beings live in conflict, and I don't think the Arctic's any different than any other place. And I think that it's safe to say that if what we all think is the most needed for sustainable development is infrastructure, the infrastructure is only going to be built for dual military and civilian purposes. And so the Russians are ahead of the rest of us because they're aggressive militarily about defending their coastline, as would any other nation be. They just happen to have half the Arctic coastline. But I think the rest of us will have to do the same. That was Alice Rogoff, founder of Arctic Today, who I spoke with at the 2018 Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Iceland. Continuing on the theme of 2007, next up is Nina Worms, Associate Professor in History of Technology at KTH Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. She explains how the CS Minimum became a major media event. 
The Arctic and the sea ice are two interesting things that go together because they make it possible to track and visualize climate change in a very forceful way. The Arctic has been in focus for a long time when it comes to climate change, but the annual variability, the fact that it changes so much over the year, has been a problem for many. So how do you distinguish real change from that variability? And then the sea ice, which also varies with the year, has become one of those lachmus tests or canaries, birds in the mine. Through science and technology, first and foremost, satellite remote sensing, we've been able for decades now to collate data of the sea ice, primarily of the sea ice extent, so that we can compare between different years. The ice shrinks every summer to reach a minimum in the fall, typically in September, and then it grows again to reach a maximum in February or March. That shrinking and growing can be detected by remote sensing satellites. And when you put that data together, you realize that since 1979, where we have reliable satellite data, that curve has been declining. So the extent of sea ice is declining. And in 2007, which is a climate year for other reasons, like Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth and the Peace Prize, we also had a major sea ice minimum. So it's important for that reason. It became a year when several things coalesced. And this is also a time when that got to be a mediatized event in that context. The sea ice is also a really interesting example of how you can communicate climate change, which is otherwise very hard to grasp because it's invisible, right? CO2 levels are invisible, temperature is invisible, but the ice you can actually visualize. And the interesting thing furthermore is that you can visualize a precise time when the ice is at a minimum. Using and pasting together a lot of images that are taken from these satellites, you can get an event of climate change that is not a calving iceberg or an eruption or a storm, but a continuous scientific conclusion, but in the form of a specific time and that you can have an image of. And I think that's one of the reasons that the sea ice minimum comes back over and over again as a media story, because it's visualizable and it's graspable, even though it's very complicated through science and technology to get that image. It's a very good point. I mean, it seems like it's a combination of a historical precedent or unprecedented event. It's based on data, it's based on science, it's based on imagery, high technology. It seems like it's almost the perfect artifact for expressing these sort of changes. Yeah, and in a way it's very unique. So very often we either have graphs that are condensates of science and we have a hard time to relate to those as human beings, right? Because they're just figures. Or we have a calving iceberg, but that's often, you know, more in the weather section and it's a, a catastrophe and it's unnatural. Whereas this is a condensate of climate change that we can visualize and it is repeatedly reminding us of what is happening. That was Associate Professor Nina Worms. And finally, on this episode on media narratives and coverage of the Arctic over the past 12 years, here's Mia Christensen, professor of media and communication studies at Stockholm University, who co-authored with Annika Nielsen the brand new book, Arctic Geopolitics, Media and Power. We first need to start with what media narratives are, especially the last 10 years with the social media use being intensified and all that. We have all these ideas about how the media, in quotation marks, work. The dominant idea at the time, 10 years ago, I can say, was that social media were going to take over and the legacy media, that is traditional media, such as newspapers, radio, television, were going to diminish in terms of their significance. But we know now that it doesn't 
work that way. How it works is that there's an interplay between these or amongst these different media channels, which is called intermediation. Or we can think about this in terms of a media ecology. That is, it's not the case that legacy media or elite media or traditional media are losing their ground. It's not that, you know, what we know only comes from social media, but there's a very, very complex dynamic amongst those two domains. And I know from my research, especially on the Arctic, looking at both traditional media and these new media outlets, is that older news outlets such as The Independent or The Guardian or Financial Times, they are nowadays checking out these smaller media outlets such as Arctic Today, The Independent Barons Observer to do some like fact checking and vice versa. So we live in an age where these uh, interplays are taking place in a very complex manner. You mentioned 2007. Perhaps tell us about the, the particular narrative that took shape at that time and the sort of the, the impact it had and the, the uh, prominence it still enjoys today mm. in the media. Well, the prominence of uh, 2007, the first Arctic sea ice minimum, relates to its significance in terms of climate change and more specifically about global climate change. So that moment, which was a media moment, became a turning point to indicate that the sea ice was melting faster than predicted before. In that sense, the Arctic became the bellwether for climate change, and that's when it really made headline news all over the world. And at that point, and even maybe more significantly in 2012, when we had the second Arctic sea ice minimum, it became an indicator that the global climate was changing faster than predicted before, and the international media coverage at the time was pointing to more scientific certainty. And it's important that, again, I would like to emphasize that what was happening in the Arctic, Arctic change was framed or perceived in relation to climate change. Previously, when it came to climate change, were limited to an understanding that this was a scientific controversy. I think what 2007 and 2012 CIS Minimo did was they pointed out it was beyond that. We did have scientific certainty and the ice was melting and this did have global significance. And that's what I talked about in relation to uh, scalar transcendence in the first book. That is something very isolated, maybe in previous times, very local or very regional was understood as something very global. And I think that's what uh, the sea ice melting and, the, and this data that we received from satellites at the time did in terms of public understanding. I mean, now 12 years later, do you think that, does that narrative still have legs? Is this, are people, it seems to me that a lot of media accounts still talk about the Arctic in, in a quite a similar way as 2007. Do you think it's because things haven't changed that much or because it's just such a seductive narrative of melting ice and opening up economic opportunities? Uh, we listened a bit um, to this interview I did with Alex Rogoff and she also points to this article uh, by uh, Scott uh, Borgerson in Foreign Affairs and of course the, the Russian flag planting. Do yeah. you, you feel this, this media or this narrative it has run its course? Does it still have use? One thing that needs to be pointed out is the fact that media love controversy. They like conflict frames more than cooperation and peace frames. So they look for that, especially in international media. So even though many say in the field, in you know geopolitics, media and communication studies, or environmental governance, they would say this has been maybe a period of peace and cooperation. Media would love to say otherwise and look for other kinds of narratives. And Russian flag planting is a very good example of that. 
that. I have included in my new book also a study about Russian media done by a colleague, and Russian newspapers indicate that they did not see this as something controversial. They see this as something as part of their scientific endeavor, whereas in, in international media, it was uh, continuously framed as something Russia claiming territory and power in the Arctic. And there also, we need to understand that the media, as we understand it, the media, the legacy media, they are competing with what we used to call new media, social media, etc. So in order to be able to stay alive, to stay in the business, they need these kinds of narratives. And this does not indicate that the media are not doing their best. They are. There are very qualified, very well-informed, very knowledgeable, very skilled journalists out there, and they are doing their best. But it also happens to be the fact that since the start of early 2000s, the media outlets have been cutting down on their funding. And oftentimes, the first to go are environmental desks, which means they have very limited resources in terms of uh, human power and money to spend for environmental journalism. So what happens is very many examples of what is called parachute journalism in big media. That is, uh, they spent a lot of money, say, in the caliber of tens of thousands of dollars every other year or maybe every third year. And they send a journalist and really good photographer up to the Arctic. And then we get like a big story, which is also syndicated. But otherwise, we don't really get continuous reporting from these regions. In that case, what is lost is local, on-the-ground, real stories. And that explains why, when we look at the overall coverage in the international media, we see very little about local life and local people, indigenous peoples, because that's not what sells. And this is in line with what I've been doing in terms of uh, empirical research over the past 10 years and talking to journalists. They point out the fact that the Arctic is an imaginative space. It fuels the imagination. It's a vast space. Polar bears, which we as researchers think as reductionist versions of representing the Arctic, they see as ways of capturing the audience or the readers. So that's the kind of conflict we're talking about when it comes to what is actually happening out there and the needs of this region inhabited by 4 million people and what we are seeing in international media. But what we have differently, I would say, the last few years is locally based smaller media like Arctic Today ran by Alice Rogoff and now they are actually joining forces by other small media which is a very interesting development. They have already joined forces by Independent Barents Observer, Nunatsiak News, High North News and the Iceland Monitor to form an alliance where they share both human and material resources to report from the Arctic about the Arctic and that's very interesting because most of the coverage of the Arctic or most of the reporting of the Arctic is coming from outside sources and I think this is a game changer. What I've been dealing with the last 10 years was looking at how Arctic governance is taking shape from a geopolitical perspective, the role of Arctic Circle and all that and I think the conclusion that I have arrived at along with my research partner is that we are seeing a discursive region taking shape in terms of these alliances, not only politically but also discursively because the discursive actually matters a great deal. Arctic is both an actual space, obviously it exists, but in the case of the Arctic, very interestingly, if we can think about the ice as a medium, and it is melting, it's exposing the continental shelf, which several nations make a claim to, right? Canada, Russia, because of the minerals that lie underneath. So in that way, if we think about medium as an elemental substance, it is melting. So it is actually changing the actual space of the Arctic. And virtually, in terms of media, 
in media discourses, there is also a space which is being imagined in many different ways. And I only found out about like how the Russians are thinking about this because I was uh, fortunate enough to work with a Russian colleague who looked at Russian media. Of course, it's not accessible to us. We're not really hearing much about the Russian side of the story. So the Arctic is an amazing space in many ways, virtually, materially, and actually that is being shaped and reshaped. You mentioned ice and polar bears being icons of the Arctic. And the media has been very much connected to climate change. In reality as well, but the media has certainly seized upon that. They've done so for quite some time now. Do you feel sometimes that the the Arctic and climate change are almost too tightly coupled? Or do you think that's just inevitable? Can you think about the Arctic without thinking and talking about climate change? Absolutely. the The former. I totally agree with you. Unfortunately, in some ways, fortunately, yes, it is the bellwether of global climate change. And it is important that we use the Arctic to highlight what is happening globally. And it's something that the audiences and readers connect closely to Arctic climate change. But at the same time, the Arctic is not only about climate change. That was Mia Christensen, whose new book is called Arctic Geopolitics, Media and Power. You can subscribe to the Polar Geopolitics podcast on most major platforms, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Acast. Check out our website, polargeopolitics.com. Get in touch by email, polargeopolitics.podcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Polar Geopol. Music by Mark Vandenbosch. Voiceover, Keith Foster. Logo design by Daniel Brockman. My name is Eric Paglia. Thanks for listening to Polar Geopolitics.